Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Financy Podcast, episode 15. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Ken Fisher. Mr. Fisher has had a fantastic career in finance. Mr. Fisher is most known for founding and being the former CEO of Fisher Investments for 37 years. Mr. Fisher is also a renowned author. His prestigious Forbes portfolio strategy column ran monthly for 32 and a half years until December 2016, making Mr. Fisher the longest continuously running columnist in the magazine's history. Mr. Fisher has authored 11 books on investing, four of those books being New York Times bestsellers. In 2010, he was named to Investment Advisor Magazine's 30 for 30 list of the 30 most influential people in the investment advisory business over the last 30 years. As of December 2021, Mr. Fisher's firm manages over $190 billion. Today, Mr. Fisher and I will be talking about his career in finance, money management, five favorite stocks right now, thoughts on the current U.S. and global economy, and current inflation rates. I'm happy to have him on the show, so let's just get started. Mr. Fisher, welcome and thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Logan. You're a very nice guy. Now, Mr. Fisher, before we jump into today's topics, I'd love to hear your story on how you got into finance and how that eventually led to you founding Fisher Investments. Well, I was a kid, went to college, not unusual. I uh, was going to go to graduate school. My father was in the investment business and he said, gee, you know, the way that graduate school thing works, you can defer for a year if you want. Why don't you come to work for me? You got an older brother that's working for me and uh, see if you like the investment business. And if you do, you keep at it. And if you don't, you go back and do the graduate school you've already been accepted at. And my view was, okay, why not? What do I got to lose? So I did that. Uh, after a year, I decided that I would either kill my father or he would kill me, and I'd rather have the personal relationship than the business relationship. Um, not that he was a bad guy or that I was a bad guy, it's just we were very different kind of people. So I went my own way, but I stayed in the investment business because I liked it. I, I was too young to know I couldn't, so I could. And uh, that's pretty much, I went out on my own, uh, literally at the age of 22. A stupid kid. Great. Now, now I'm I, a stupid old guy. Fair enough. Um, now, now I mean, I initially got interested in finance because of my father, and I think he's you know going to keep motivating me to you know find a career that I want to pursue later on in the finance world. So, I think an important part of your life was kind of how your father influenced your career. So, my understanding is your father Philip was one of the first investors to pioneer and further innovate growth investing. Uh, so how did your father influence you and help shape you into the investor you are today? So first, before going there, I don't really think that's the most important thing my father ever did relative to me. I think the most important thing my father ever did relative to me was being a father, which is pretty normal for father-son relationship. Uh, he was this phenomenal bedtime storyteller. And uh, when I was a boy, I was the youngest of three sons. And every night he would line us up where one of us would be in bed and two of us would be uh, on the floor. And uh, he would be sitting there and we'd all be close. And uh, the two on the floor would have their pillows on the floor. And he'd tell us a bedtime story. And then he'd, whenever the one in bed fell asleep, he'd put the other two in bed. And then the next night we'd rotate and I didn't understand it at the time, but the bedtime stories that he was telling me were really about heroes that he wanted me and my brothers to be when we grew up. That's what he was doing, was trying to, to pattern us. 
And he was a very strange fellow. Uh, he was a great guy, but a very unusual person. He had Asperger's long before the word Asperger's was known as a concept, you know, a mental construct and, or you know, diagnosis of a mental condition. And um, when I got into the investment business, he was a growth stock guy. He had been a legendary uh, founder, early this uh, pioneer of the growth stock school of investing. Uh, a lot of the early writings about growth stock stuff refer back to him, including writings by Ben Graham and others, uh, Warren Buffett and others. And so he taught me what he knew and believed about growth stock investing. And I, at the time, uh, learned that as best I could. But I also was young and my early, my first year in the investment business, I read 40 investment books because I wanted to know also how other people thought about all kinds of other stuff. And uh, if you read, if you just go, kind of go to the library, uh, if they still have them anywhere, and you kind of go through the library shelves on investment books and read them all, and read as many as they got, whatever they got, what, what you get to is that you're supposed to be a value investor. That's what they tell you. So I rebelled and became a value investor. Turns out that's stupid. Um, the reality is that sometimes value works, sometimes growth works. Markets pre-price all widely known information, market pre-price curriculum. And uh, after I was, and, and when I became a value investor, I was lucky because I happened to do it at exactly the right time. I became a value investor in the period of 1975, just the beginning of 75, just at the beginning of the bull market that started in 75 was the perfect time to be a value investor. And I, in the next few years, it worked really well for me, which helped launch me. And then I ran into the time period where it didn't work so well, and I didn't understand that. And when you're in a style and it doesn't work very well, you usually, if you believe in the style, you hold on, hold on, hold on. And maybe you can hold on until it comes back into phase. Maybe you can't. And I got lucky, and it did come back into phase. And with the 82 um, bull market that began, uh, I got another good run. And then I ran into a longer period where it didn't work. But it's in that longer period that I figured out there's a time for value. There's a time for growth. There's a time for bigger stocks. There's a time for smaller stocks. There's a time for different sectors. And there's a reason that all that fits the way it is tied to what's been pre-priced, what hasn't been pre-priced. And so then I evolved into a, a, what I've been for quite some time now, which is someone that shifts styles over time. That's cool. It. Got it. Now, I want to dive deeper into our conversation about money management and investing. So I want to briefly touch base on the early part of your firm and what it does. Do you mind providing an introduction to Fisher Investments and what specifically does your firm do? Well, I always have a hard time figuring out what my firm does. It confuses the heck out of me and has for, for decades. You know, I've been in the investment business for a half a century now. And uh, my firm that I started and that I'm executive chairman of and uh, co-chief investment officer, Fisher Investments, uh, runs money and provides investment advice to individuals, uh, high net worth individuals, and to uh parts of the institutional world, primarily to find benefit and contribution plans, uh, some endowments and sovereigns, uh, sovereign funds, uh, governmental money uh, of foreign governments. And uh, in that, uh, we provide investment advice, but we're vertically integrated. So we actually manage money on top of providing investment advice. We're a 1940 Investment Advisors Act 
a registered advisor and uh, run a little over, as we speak, you said 198 uh, at the intro, a little over $200 billion, which is not really as big as people think it is. People think $200 billion is a lot, because they think, boy, if I had $200 billion, I could throw one heck of a party. But the re- And you could. But the reality is uh, that, that you know, we have about one-tenth of one percent market share in our global marketplace. And we are both a global advisor as well as investing globally. So we're really a fairly big grain of sand in a big sandbox. Got it. Now, you know, Mr. Fisher, I often hear about how your stock or your portfolio investment portfolio has to usually be diversified. And then sometimes I hear like, oh, just concentrate all your money into one specific stock like Tesla as large wealth creation has been there. So I was wondering, how do you build a well diversified investment portfolio? Should your portfolio just be made of different asset classes like fixed income and equities or include hedge funds or private equity? Or do you diversify based on industries and geographies? So let me Take that off a little different direction. Part of what you're asking is answered by what's the goal someone's trying to accomplish. And when you mention something like having it all in one stock, like stock X, whatever stock X is, that's a kind of a hit big go home uh, concept. If it works, hey, if it doesn't, And the reality is um, that is something someone could do for themselves and take that risk. And if you're young and you want to take that risk, that's all fine and well. Usually that kind of thing, if it works, it really screws you up because you think you're a genius. And probably the most dangerous thing you can do in investing is think you're a genius. I don't care how smart you are. Uh, this is a realm of endeavor where, as you know, Warren Buffett has famously said, uh, the guy with 130 IQ uh, doesn't particularly beat the guy with 100 IQ. Uh, and the implication there is it's really more about do you understand how markets work and do you have wisdom and discipline uh, than being smarter. If, in fact, you have 140 or 150 or 160 IQ, uh, you probably think you're really smart and you miss the point that the market has about a 360 IQ and is the great humiliator and wants to humiliate you, me, your mother, everybody else, and, and is an equal opportunity humiliator of brutality at the extreme. Markets are just brutal. So if you think you're smart, you're really putting yourself into trouble. The uh, fact of the matter is that uh, if you, then you buy that one big one and it doesn't work, then you tend to think you're r- r- really, you, you ought to go join the circus or something. And, you know, that doesn't help you with investing either, because if you, instead of hitting big, go home, it tends to screw you up a different way. So uh, to the point of diversification, Harry Markowitz defined diversification uh, in 1951 when I was one year old, uh, in, in that diversification is not about putting different stuff together, not about having a lot of different things. You mentioned one stock. It's not like having... 10 stocks that are similar. It's not like having stocks and bonds, although that might be. It's not like having, it's, it's about having a portfolio that have 
components that blend together with similar long-term return expectations aimed at your return goals, but that in the short term bounce against each other or co-vary negatively such that the portfolio is more stable in the short to intermediate term aimed at that longer term uh, return goal than would be the case if you had things that were more similar with that return goal. And so the key is uh, in what Markowitz defined in 1951 uh, called means variance optimization, which is almost always deployed badly by most practitioners. Uh, you're wanting to put together stocks or securities or other stuff, doesn't really matter, that kind of operate like this. I think this is going to do really well because of these reasons, whatever they are. But I might be wrong. I always know I might be wrong. So if those things don't do really well, why would that be? And instead, what would do really well? And let me also own some of that. So that if the things that I think will do really well do really badly, because I'm dead wrong, I got some of what would do really well instead. That's diversification. And those two co-varying like that provide you a path toward where you're trying to get to that's more stable than just having stuff that's all the same. Because the problem when you have stuff that's all the same is if you're wrong for three, four, five years in a row, you lose your mind. And you may not believe that, but particularly for your younger listeners, three, four, five years is a really long time. Think, think, think about your last three, four, five years. And then try to envision what 10 years from now is like for you. You know, I always hear people say things like, oh, this will work out in the long run. And it might. But if it back, it looks like the long run for you is 10 years. And it's going to do okay in the next 10 years. But for the next five years, it's going to do really badly. <laughs> it's going to destroy your brain before you ever get to success. So diversification is this thing that puts together these. And let me just speak to that point differently. And I've said this a lot for a long time. The realm that I operate in is a realm where, I mean, investing and investing broadly for a long time is one where if you're right 70% of the time in the long term, you become an absolute living legend. So you better be used to being wrong fully 30% of the time. If you can't take a punch, and have it not impact your emotion and come back. If you can't come back, if you can't be wrong a lot comfortably and move on and keep moving forward, you never get there because everybody's wrong a lot. And that's the part that a lot of people don't get. This is not a business about being right all the time. This is a business about being right more than you're wrong. And if, again, as I said, if you're right 70% of the time in the long term, you become an absolute living legend. Everybody makes a lot of mistakes. The very best make a lot of mistakes. That's why you blend together things that give you that diversification. So when you're wrong, you're not so terribly wrong that you can't come back from it. So would your portfolio be like kind of like matching certain market conditions? Like if stocks do well, then commodities will do bad. And then that kind of equalizes the return or you're saying minimizes. You're, you're, you're asking you, the way you asked that question, Logan, you asked about what we do, which I would say is a little different than the concept we were just talking about. 
What we do is specific as a subset of the concept. The concept is what, what you articulated is fine. If you believe these things are going to do really well, but if they wouldn't, it would be because of this stuff that would make these other things do really well. Then it really doesn't matter what the this and the that are. You follow that? Yeah. That's the concept. We tend to do all of that within the subset of capital markets that's primarily stocks. Ah. If, the, if this stock doesn't do really well like we think it would, what would then, from those reasons, drive a different stock to do really well? Got it. Okay, cool. We're, so- we're basically We're basically, not solely, but we're mostly aimed at stock market returns. That's basically mm-hmm. what we've done pretty much forever. Got it. We do, we do, we do other things, but the other things are small. Uh-huh. Most of what we do is stock market oriented. Got it. Now, speaking of stocks, um, what are some key metrics you look for in choosing to buy a stock? And when you decide to sell, do you have set sale targets? Uh, to the latter question, sale targets, no. Uh, we, we just pay attention moving forward, real time, thinking about it all the time. Uh, there isn't an easier answer to the first part of your question, but there's a way to think about it. Again, earlier I articulated stocks, big, small growth value, U.S. foreign, based on industry equivalent. Now, let me describe that for a minute. In the recent years, tech has been hot. You know that. Exactly. Tech is not always hot. There's a time. There's a time for tech. There's a time not for tech. Tech is a big subset of growth. People not understanding well enough don't look inside indexes structurally to understand their components well enough to think about them correctly. So people will say U.S. has done better than foreign, and that's true. But that's mostly true because most of the tech in the world comes from America. And if you take the advantage that tech has provided to America out of America and foreign, the returns have been almost identical. If you take the rest of big growth out, the returns are identical. And that does not mean there's not a reason. so, So therefore, the way you want to think about it is, how does our tech work versus the tech that's not in America? How does our healthcare work versus the healthcare that's not in America? And the, and the part about foreign is to get the best stuff that's outside of America as well as inside of America. But when you think about what you're looking for, the most important singular feature, that, not the only, the most important singular feature that uh, d- d- distinguishes a growth stock from a value stock is how fat are the gross operating profit margins of the company? When you take sales less cost of goods sold, what's the remainder's percentage? And the reality is that companies with really high gross operating profit margins, really high residue after sales minus cost of goods sold, not net profit, gross operating profit, have huge capability to fund growth. They can fund more research, they can fund more marketing, they can fund more selling, they can fund more interest expense to fund capital expenditure if they want. 
uh, take on debt service to, to, to fund growth. Inherently, not all companies with that gross operating profit margins grow well. But companies that really grow at a high rate for a long time are fat gross operating profit margin companies. So there's a time when you want to say, I want to be in growth stocks. That means you, you're going to be looking at starting with your first cut, looking at gross operating profit margin. There's a time to be in value stocks, which is basically the early years coming off the bottom of a bear market. And there's a reason for that. But they'll have thin gross operating profit margins. There's a time for both. But it's that the gross operating profit margin takes the needle in a haystack concept and cuts it down into two haystacks. So you don't waste your time at a point in time focused on so much of the hay. Instead, you winnow you win the hay down quite a bit. Um, and, and then, of course, there's this, and I, I don't want to take a long time on this because we've only got so much time on the podcast, but <clears throat> there's the whole discipline of what to look for in a growth company otherwise. And there's a whole concept of what to look for in a value company. Otherwise, if you want, we can spend a little time on that. But the, the first part is figuring out, should I be in growth stuff? No, should I be in value stuff? Should I be in bigger stocks? Should I be in smaller stocks? The perfect time for the smaller value company is right off the bottom of the bear market for the next first third of the next bull market. The perfect time for bigger and growth is the back third in time of a bull market and the beginning of a bear market. The middle period is a period of confusion where they both tend to play. And you need to be more in the mode of stock picker. But in the beginning of a bull market, it's just mostly the thrust of value stocks. And the last third of time of a bull market, it's mostly a thrust of growth stocks. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. Cool. Now, speaking of individual stocks... But, but, but remember, growth could be a lot of stuff that's not mm. tech. I mean, there's a lot of growth stuff that's not tech, right? So I, I didn't want to get too carried away. You, I, I believe, are you know, in the geography that's you know kind of part of America's tech epicenter geographically, and it, it and it's too easy to think of growth and tech as exactly the same thing. But there's plenty of growth that's not tech. Would uh would like high PE ratios? Would that be a good example of like? No. Okay. PEs don't tell you anything. Okay, got it. Now, speaking of individual stocks, I, mean, I, love I, mean, to... I, I, start, I started my career demonstrating that PEs didn't tell you anything. Oh, hmm. what about profitability, like negative EPS or you know, uh, low return on equity? No, nope, nope. Got it. Uh, so, 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 let me just let me just take you to a simpler concept: markets pre-price all widely known information. If you do not believe that, you go to hell. That's just the way it works. I, I don't mean literal hell. I mean stock market hell. You follow that? Yeah. Markets pre-price all widely known information. Anything that's really widely known, you like Joe Biden, you don't like Joe Biden. You think Omicron's going to do this. You think Omicron's going to do that. Everybody yak, 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 yaks about all this stuff. Unless you think somehow, some way, you know some other people don't know, other than the fact you got an opinion, and your opinions are opinions are all priced, all widely known information, priced pretty well. That's why markets are pretty efficient. PEs are one of the most widely known things in the world. 
You follow that? Yeah. When I was young, data was a lot more scarce. Today, data is on everybody's iPhone, right? Anything yeah. that's really widely known. I mean, the, the reason the gross operating profit margin is useful in the function that I described as one first cut is most people don't even think about it. But everybody thinks about PE. You know, you kept wanting to go back to PE, EPS, all that, which is all that same thing. Doesn't tell you anything, but it's useful and all statistically, it, it's garbage at this point. Got it. Okay, cool. So I guess diving deeper into individual stocks, um, I'd love to hear what are your five favorite stocks that you've invested or still own and five up and coming future winners you believe in? So I never talk about current stocks at all, ever. Uh, in uh, these kinds of things because I don't have a venue to help you when you get to the other side and it should be time to get out of them. If you need me to get into them, then you need me to get out of them. And if I tell your listener, you ought to buy stock X and they do. And six months later, I change my mind. Maybe I've hurt your listener. So I don't go there. I mean, when I wrote my column in Forbes, uh, for 32 and a half years, I did single stocks, but I always had the opportunity to go back and talk about them after the fact the next month and the next month and the next month and whenever I wanted, right? Because I was in there every month. So now I don't have a, a venue for doing that correctly. And so I, I don't. And it's so easy for someone. I mean, I, I, I don't know everyone. Different people have different skill sets. Uh, I, I, doing Talking about single stocks, I could easily hurt somebody. Everybody always wants to know stocks, but you know, everybody also wants calorie-free, optimum-tasting dessert. You can't have it. Great. Now, the last investing question I wanted to ask you was: What attributes do you believe makes a great investor? I don't know that there's any singular rule about that, but, but, but there's some common features. Uh, generally, they are very disciplined people. Generally, they're people that say, here's what I believe, but evolve over time as the world changes. They evolve as they see different things in the world. If you look, for example, at things Warren Buffett would say today, they're very different than what he would say 50 years ago. And that's because he evolved. I think that part is central to most people that do really well in the long term. Uh, I do not believe that um, most people that are really good at investing are unidimensional in that they only do one type of security. I think they've got a greater ability to look at a broader spectrum of the investment world and think through what has potential and what doesn't, what has potential relative to risk and what doesn't. Um, these people, in my opinion, tend to be much more modest than you would think they would be. That the greatest investors tend to understand how often they make mistakes and they tend to be humbled by that. Because as I said earlier, this is a realm where if you're the very best, you're still going to make a lot of mistakes. Uh, and finally, really good investors, in my opinion, 
don't give a rat's darn about what everybody else thinks other than to try to understand sentiment maybe but they aren't sort of if you will clubby want to hang out with people if joe says it's like this it must be uh they instead tend to think for themselves and they tend to know that they've got to think for themselves so they tend to be relatively independent great now I know an important aspect of investing is knowing current market and economic conditions. So I just want to go ahead and dive deeper into the U.S. economy. So my first question I want to ask was the stock market has recently become volatile again with the news of the Omicron uh, COVID variant. What is your opinion of the Omicron and do you believe it will have a negative impact on the economic recovery? First, I don't think I have any special knowledge on this topic that isn't already widely out there. Therefore, I also think all kinds of people think about it. So therefore, I think it's priced. Since I think it's priced, the answer to your question is only going to have a big impact. Okay. The reality is everybody's got a right to an opinion. I got an opinion. But everybody's got an opinion. Opinions are pre-priced. I don't have a unique opinion. My opinion is that Omicron fits into what is normally true with viruses, which is they tend to mutate toward being, they tend to mutate toward being more contagious, less deadly. It's not really in a virus's interest to mutate toward being more deadly uh, because if they kill their hosts, you know, killing your customer is always a bad idea. And Mm -hmm. effectively, we are Omicron's customers and uh, we are COVID's customers. And so moving to kill us all is really not useful to it. But uh, I, I think we get more and more used to regardless to living with these uh, these problems. And we adapt. And the, the stuff, if, if, if you look at how the market has behaved and you look at how COVID has had um, death increase over time, the death spikes have been lower Market reactions have been lesser. And I think at this point in time, we're pretty well, you know, getting to 2022 becomes the year where we kind of learn to live with COVID sort of flu-like, endemic-like. Got it. Well, that's what I think. But again, I don't think my thoughts are unique. I think this is all pre-priced. Fair enough. Um, So I guess in the last few months, uh, the new infrastructure plan was passed by Congress, and people believe that this legislation will now help ease inflationary pressures and strengthen supply chains by making overdue improvements to railroads, uh, airports, ports, and roads. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on President Biden's new infrastructure plan worth uh, $1.85 trillion? Do you think it will provide positive impact on the economy? No. False stupid stuff. So let, let, let's just break that down into what's really in the bill. There's a couple hundred billion dollars in infrastructure in the bill, and the rest of it's all nonsense. And of the couple hundred billion dollars of infrastructure that's in the bill, there is no, again, you, you, you've told me that some of your audience is very young high school and college students, some of it's older, people more, you know, your father's age. People, your father's age may remember when President Obama uh, had a $100 billion uh, bill for, quote, shovel-ready infrastructure. Turned out almost none of that money ever got spent because there is no such thing as shovel-ready infrastructure. 
in today's world, a permitting process to get anything done takes so long, if it's federal, that you run through several more budget cycles before much of that money ever gets spent. Some of that money will get spent on planning and permitting. But I'm going to give you an example, and it's not where you are. It's where I used to live for a while, uh, uh, just north of Portland, Oregon. Oregon is separated from Washington State uh, by the mighty Columbia River. It's about a mile wide. It's a great river. It's a big river. It's a long river. And uh, it's got a bridge across it from the 19th century. And I-5 that runs from Seattle all the way down to Los Angeles uh, runs right across that bridge. That bridge is old. They'd like to replace it. They've wanted to replace it for years and years and years and years and years. They've never gotten first base on replacing it. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on planning. And they've never gotten to first base because... Oh, so, so let me take you to a tangent for a moment. Not very far from there is Mount Hood, which is the place where the uh, uh, Olympic skiers and all like that train during uh, the summer because they got all your skiing there. And um, Mount Hood has a famous lodge on it that was built in the 1930s uh, with CCC money when Franklin Roosevelt could call up the governor of Oregon and say, I got some money. I'd like to spend some money and build something. Can we get this done? And the governor would say, yeah, that's a great idea. And then they'd start. Today, to get that I-5 bridge done, you got to get the cooperation of the federal government, the state government of two states, the cities and the counties on both sides of the river, and multi-government agencies in every one of those governmental jurisdictions all to sign off, and none of them have to because they're all union employees. You follow that? Yeah. So they never get through the permitting process because all it takes is a field and they go, man, and how do I do it? And it, and it gets bogged down. And the same thing will happen with most of Obama, uh, uh, President Biden's infrastructure bill. It's all well intended. Some of it will get spent. Most of the, what gets spent will be on permitting, not actually executing breaking ground on things that end up helping. Will we have a Congress two, four and six years from now that want to keep that same thing going or will they come back and revisit the money? If you look at that $1.8 billion, only 500 of uh, $1.8 trillion, excuse me, only 500 of it is actually new money. The rest of it is money that was previously allocated to other things, now being reallocated to this, which two years from now would be reallocated to something else and then reallocated to something else after that. It, it's not an easy thing to spend money on infrastructure today. Hmm. Got it. But anyway, that's a long, long, long rambling answer to tell you that most of it's stupid stuff and the part that isn't stupid stuff, most of it doesn't really get spent. Got it. Now, my second to last question before we end our show is um, recently we have seen a lot of news about high levels of inflation, I believe in the 6% range, not seen in, since the Reagan administration in the early 80s. Are you worried about current inflation rates and its effect on the overall U.S. and global economy? Uh, not so much. Um, uh, you know, inflation's part of life. When I was young, you know, you had increasing inflation pretty much from the time I was born until 1980. And then you started having decreasing levels of inflation. The reality is I'm in the investing business and the beginnings of inflation aren't bad for stocks. Uh, if they were, stocks would have had a terrible year this last year. You follow that? Yeah. Um, 
at the beginnings of inflation, there have been bad for stocks. Why do we have this inflation? Well, I think most people see it incorrectly. We do not have it because of the reasons that people think we do, which is too much money chasing too much, too few goods, because I do not believe what the central banks have done uh, in the last few years have created real money. They've created near monies, not real monies. The processes of so-called QE, et cetera, uh, that, that, that they've not really been stimulated. The reality of why we have this is, <laughs> let me just go back uh, for a moment. What happened last year, people say, boy, the economy got tanked because of COVID. That's ridiculous. The economy didn't get tanked because of COVID. The economy got tanked because the government shut it down in fear of COVID. We, we've had epidemics before that have impacted countries. We've had global pandemics before. This is the first time the government shut things down, and they've never made the stock market go down before. If you take the great influenza of 1918, which was much bigger than COVID in its magnitude, domestically and globally, it didn't make the stock market go down. The stock market actually went up the whole time. What caused what we have gone through is the lockdowns, and then the back and forth and off and on and restrictions and you can do this, no, you can't do that. And all those dislocations create pricing pressure. All kind of things shut down because they had to. Some of them come back faster. Some of them come back slower. You raise the price high enough, long enough, which might be a month for some things, might be two years for some others. And you eventually get more capacity that brings the price down. It's pretty simple. Uh, the pricing mechanisms work. Capitalism works. Capitalism is the most blessed thing that's happened to humanity pretty much ever. Without capitalism, pretty much every darn good thing you have wouldn't exist. Because where do they get created from? And how do you get them in your hands? And the fact of capitalism is that it's reactive to the pricing mechanisms. And the higher prices will bring on capacity, but it takes a little time. Some things like bringing on energy supply takes longer than bringing on lumber supply. Uh, steels in between. Uh, and so when you look at where the prices go up and then when they peak and where they come down, it's, it's mostly just a function of how long it takes for, for, for new capacity to come back. And again, in a world where permitting is often restrictive, some categories are particularly restrictive. But it's really a matter of governmental problems. It's not really a matter of anything else. And it will go away. Uh, you refer to pricing. Okay. So you refer to pricing mechanisms. Mechanisms. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, you know, I, I, I make nails. Uh, I sell nails. Uh, I sell you nails for, you know, $250 a ton. Uh, you raise the price to $350 a ton. I want to make more nails. I'll put in a na more, more nail plant. I'll start more foundry. I'll get more machines to pull them through those little holes that nails get mm -hmm. pulled through to make them and slap on the little heads on them. And boy, oh boy, you know, at $350, I'd really love to do that. Yeah. And drop, drop the price down to $175. I'm going to shut down my plant. 
I can, I can make money at 175. Yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. Just, you know, people, people that produce goods and services, mm-hmm. the prices. Got it. And okay. they all know what their costs are. They all know what they can put a plant in for or can't. Approximately. Close enough. Mm-hmm. They, they do it all. I mean, they, they, they live that life. All you got to do is figure out what the price is going to be, and that tells them how they, what they think about future capacity. Got it. Okay, cool. So now this is the last question. So for my concluding question for our listeners, what advice would you give to young students who have an interest in career in a career in investing or finance? So if you're young, first I want you to know that I'm not. And so I'm not sure that I understand correctly what you would or wouldn't relate to. I'm not sure that I understand today. I mean, you know, my youngest son is 44 years old. And uh, I've got grandchildren, but none of them are the ages of your listeners. They're younger. So I'm not sure that I really understand what, what they in the world they confront need to go through. Secondarily, I would say that making money is not the most important thing in the world. You, you know, as you age at a point, you realize that all you ever really had in life was time to do with as you saw fit. and you make stupid choices or wise choices. And what's, in my opinion, really wise is to do what you love to do that also somehow, some way helps others. That's, in my mind, a pretty good goal and role to fulfill. So the real issue is not so much necessarily trying to make a lot of money. Um, money's not bad. Money's not good. I mean, poverty doesn't help anything, but 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 being you know rich you know I'm supposed to be one I don't know if you listen to the Forbes 100 list I'm supposed to be the 150th richest person in the country or some such nonsense that that doesn't really do anything for you uh, so I wouldn't be overwhelmed by those things if I was young I'd focus on what is it I really like to do that really helps people I do believe there's a few things you got to know regardless of what you want to do you, you need. A, a young person in college ought to take uh, a basic year of accounting for non-accounting majors so you understand exactly how the accounting of business works, whether you're going to be in business or not, because it's going to impact it, business is going to impact you regardless. No matter what you want to do, you ought to take a year of statistics for non-stat majors because so much is thrown at you that's false statistically in our world, that if you can't see through that as it's coming at you, it's a real handicap. Uh, Third, uh, I'd go through math and study it hard, at least through the beginning year of calculus, so you're sure you understand first and second derivatives. Uh, There's so much of what goes on in so many realms, including investing, where if you don't understand first and second derivatives, you're behind the eight ball. Uh, And then finally, I would take a year of uh, introductory economics that includes both macro and microeconomics. I want to say on all four of these categories that I've just rattled off, I would not advise being a major in them. That is, economists are usually terrible investors. Statisticians aren't so good overall. They have to overcome too much belief in the category that they've invested into that discipline. Mathematicians also. Some mathematicians have actually been pretty good investors. Um, and uh, likewise, accountants. It, 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 
it's too much investing in, in you, you want the broader education. And then after that, if I were them, I'd read a lot. I, again, in my first year, as I said, I read 40 investment books. And after that, I read more, although not at the same uh, uh, fast pace. Um, but cover the landscape. Don't believe in any of them too much if you really want to go into investing. But I'm not sure going into investing is necessarily the great idea. Uh, it, 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 when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in, I mean, I was born in San Francisco. I was the fourth generation San Franciscan. I grew up in San Mateo, California. It was just the greatest place in the world in the 1950s. It was so different than it is today. And, you know, I mean, you know, we had mountain lions in our backyard. And, uh, you know, I then moved up onto Skyline above Woodside and lived there for a long time and had mountain lions in my backyard. And uh, I've always been kind of a country boy and uh, enjoyed the heck out of all of that then. And, you know, in that simple world, I used to hop over my parents' back fence and I'd be off in the woods and I wanted to go be a forest ranger. And I went to forestry school. And then I decided after a summer job working for the U.S. Forest Service that I thought that would be a lousy career. That was a great experience. Finding out it'd be a lousy career by trying was useful to me. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I shifted what I was going to do. And I became an econ major, which, again, I had to overcome. But my point is that youth is about finding out who you really are and what you really have a passion for. And I think if you can blend that passion, whatever it is, whether it's investing or not, with trying to do something that helps other people, you're on the right path. You're on a good path. Uh, and, and if you actually want to be in investing, you don't particularly, in my opinion, need to get a degree in finance. Most of what they teach you in finance is not actually useful investing. Most of it is 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 actually not useful in investing. Uh, and you know what you need to do is find an entry point into the industry, which you get by applying to a heck of a lot of places until someplace hires you. That's pretty much it. Then, however, I want to add, it is unclear to me that I have any great ability to forecast even five to ten years from now how the investment industry may change in terms of introductory opportunity for people coming out of college. But of course, you know, I haven't said it, but it almost goes without saying, you pretty much at a minimum need a bachelor's degree. And probably for most people in most places today, you have to go back and get some kind of a master's. Got it. All right. Pretty much it. Mr. Fisher. Thank you for having me Thank on. You. You're, you're, you're a great interviewer and you're a very nice young man. And I hope everything with your podcast and your future works out really well for you. Thank you so much, Mr. Fisher. Have a great day. I'll do my best. You too. What an episode. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all I have for you today. Uh, hopefully you learned something new from this podcast and enjoyed listening to today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And if you like the show, please drop a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on any podcasting platform you listen on. I hope you guys have a great day. Um, and I hope you guys like the show and the episode. And I'll catch you guys later.